0: Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. There the scripture reads, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven and our subject today is something to rejoice about the word appears several times there in our reading and then very uniquely if you want to look at the first sentence in verse 21 there's something there that appears the only time in the New Testament or in any of the Gospels. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. <laughs> Usually, you read about Jesus being troubled in spirit, but there's the one time that he rejoiced in spirit. And we can't go into what he rejoiced over because that's another message. But the word rejoice is showing up here a lot, and that's our subject. Something. To rejoice about and of course as we mentioned that you can begin to think in your mind there are many and numerous and innumerable things I suppose if we were to begin thinking about that that cause us to rejoice things events people blessings all kinds of things to rejoice over And as we really begin to break them down and analyze, we probably would have to categorize, or should categorize those things, about whether they're worth rejoicing over or not. Many things that we rejoice in are, we realize in the long run vain, and temporal in that respect, and many of them are probably not worthy of much rejoicing. Now, here's the difference between believers and the world. The world gets all carried away with rejoicing over things that are really not worthy to rejoice over and miss the things that are really worth rejoicing over. That should not be the case with us. I'm not going to mention the event today, but there's a big event today that's going to cause a lot of people to rejoice, but on the other hand, a lot of people to sorrow. That's the way things are in the world. While one person's rejoicing over something, another person may be sorrowing and grieving over that very same thing. But rejoicing is joy, and joy is rejoicing. And as Christians, we ought to be in that constant state of rejoicing. In fact, the scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As Paul is closing out that epistle in verse 16, Rejoice evermore. Evermore. Now, rejoicing or joy, bottom line, get this, if you don't get nothing else I say today, is nothing but the fruit of thankfulness. Nobody really rejoices from an unthankful heart. It's impossible. You talk about vain rejoicing. If it's not based on thankfulness, it really doesn't even fit the definition of joy or rejoicing. But rejoicing and joy is the fruit of a thankful heart or a thankful attitude in spirit. In fact, two verses later, 1 Thessalonians five eighteen, and everything give thanks. And we can do that. Now, the problem with human nature is it wants to be selective in what we give thanks is but scripture says in everything give thanks and we can do that and why can we do that? because God works everything for our good so no exclusions there no exclusions in Romans 8.28 Christians above all people that ever have been and ever will be excel in rejoicing because they excel in being thankful They have more to be thankful for and more to rejoice in. So Christians should rejoice. The Bible says Christians shall rejoice. And if you claim to be a Christian and you're not in a state of rejoicing, then shame on you. And shame on me. We have every reason to, as instructed, rejoice evermore. In the text that we read, we see the 70 that Christ sent out. Remember, he sent out 12, and then he sent out 70 others, sent them out in twos. And they have returned from their commission, that original commission, going out and preaching the gospel that men should repent. And you can remember, I think, the best and most detailed account of that is where we referenced a little this morning in Sunday school in Matthew 10 when he sent them out and gave them literally what I would say their marching orders, what they're to do, what they're to take, what they're to leave behind, how they're to approach and, and so forth and go about the business of carrying out the commission. And he gave them power that they did not have over sicknesses, over diseases, etc., and even over evil spirits or demonic spirits, those that were possessed. So we find the 70 coming back, and, and they're on a high cloud. They're rejoicing. And likewise, or, uh, literally, they should have been. Because they say, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. Now, again, you can put yourself in that situation for a little bit and only imagine what it would have been like to be able to heal somebody with the name of Christ or the power of Christ. You know, not, not walking up to John Doe and say, I'm going to heal you. Get up. You know, no, no. All glory went through Christ and his name. I am an ambassador of the most high God Jesus Christ sent me here and in the name of Jesus Christ you stand up you know I mean that's the way it was done in some way or form because they said here in thy name in thy name it was the name of Christ the power of Christ that they got to it had been one thing to heal somebody I mean you can't see a disease inside you might see the cripple part you know made whole well that, that's pretty big I mean, that's impressive. It should be impressive, right? I mean, uh, because again, not everybody can do that. Not everybody in the Bible. And Christ had given them this special power. But the greatest power known to them would have been the power of the demons, the dark side, the devil, okay, to oppress people. And they even had power over that, that they could command an unclean spirit. To come out of somebody or to depart. So, they had a very legitimate cause for rejoicing, didn't they? I mean, you can just, you'd have had to do that to imagine what that would have been like. Every cause to rejoice. But the thing that's unique here is that the Lord Jesus, as always, took the occasion to teach and to improve upon. Yes, this is good. Yes, this is wonderful. Yes, you should rejoice in what you're doing and the power and ability that I have given you to do that and the results. But let me tell you this. That's good, but there's something better. And as we mentioned, I think, a week or two ago in a a sermon, I was using the word redirect or refocus. This is what made Christ such a masterful teacher. He always brought people to what was most important. Or if there was this, well then he trumped it with a little further, something better, something deeper, etc. And that's exactly what he does right here. He said, yes, that's good. Yes, that is wonderful. But let me tell you something to rejoice in. That's even better than that and of course he mentions that in verse 20 don't just stop your rejoicing over what you're able to do with the demons there's something far greater out there and that is rejoice because your names are written in heaven now i believe today that there is nothing that trumps that when it comes to rejoicing if there is, please enlighten me. But this is what Jesus said to rejoice over. And I have thought about it, not just in preparing this message, but in times before. And I must admit, I still come up empty handed. I can't improve upon this, I can't think of anything that is even equal to this, much less that would be superior or more worthy to rejoice in than that your name is written in heaven and you know it. And I think the very fact that the Lord says this proves my point. I mean, where else did He say rejoice in this or rejoice in that? Rejoice in this. Now, I would remind you that what he said about names written in heaven is synonymous with being saved. If your name is written in heaven, you're saved. And if you're saved, your name is written in heaven. If the Lord is your shepherd and the shepherd is your Lord, you know, I mean, all these things are synonymous. You're his and he's yours. It's the same thing as being redeemed as we sing. It's synonymous with being forgiven of your sins. It's synonymous with Christ atoning for your sins. Christ covering, shedding His blood to cover your sins, to remove them from you and that penalty forever and ever. It is as we sang the song, I'm a child of the King. If your name's in heaven, you're a child of the King. And if you're a child of the king, I assure you by authority of this book, your name is written in heaven. It's the same thing we read in Ephesians 1 about to be adopted into the family of God. So all of these things that the scripture speaks about in reference to Christ-saving sinners, various titles and terms and doctrine are all synonymous with having your name written in heaven. If your name is written in heaven, your eternal destiny is secure. You're saved. Nothing can touch you. Nothing can cause that name to not be written in heaven. So that's our focus and that's what we want to talk about. It's what the Bible says about your name written in heaven, the greatest thing anybody will ever have to rejoice over written name a name is an identity isn't it we have names that identify us and that's exactly what the names in heaven will do they are an identification of those who are redeemed as we mentioned a week or two ago the sheep whom he knows individually by name but let's Talk about or think about our name today. Legally, the first place your name is written is on a birth certificate. And legally, as we have learned this morning from some who here have lost a friend, the last place your name legally will be written will be on a death certificate, isn't it? But in between that, your name can show up in all kinds of places, can't it? And uh, today we have the thing called the Internet, where you can throw a name out in that vast, mysterious place and just see where it'll go. I mean, it's bigger than casting your bread upon the waters, just about, isn't it? A name. And it's pretty much amazing at how if you think you've got a unique name, and I've thought of some people that had some pretty unique names, and you toss it out there, and lo, it's not as unique as you thought. (laughs) There's a whole lot of other people. But nevertheless, think about the place where your name has been and is and may be. And the places that it is, is maybe because you put it there. Think of how many times you may have signed your name. You had to be taught to write your name. But since that time, our name is required in a lot of places. And we have put it there voluntarily and sometimes mandatorily we've had to put our name there. Other times, other people put our names in certain places. It's appeared in lots of places. And when we reflect on that, we realize that our names appear on places of honor and places of dishonor, don't they? We might have put them there, or somebody else put them there. It's not too good to have your name on a warrant, not too good to have your name on a wanted poster. Not too good to have your name on a military dishonorable discharge. It's a lot of bad places your name could show up. And equally, the converse is true. You can think about memorials, war memorials that you can visit. The wall in Washington and Vietnam and people go there and trace the names of loved ones. They're deceased, now just a name carved in granite slab of rock but it is an identity isn't it and people can go there and be proud of that person they knew whose name is there and then there are people who lost loved ones and they don't know what happened to them and all they have is a memory they're not buried anywhere bodies never recovered no tombstone things like that names on that Vietnam memorial or in good company, aren't they? But like I say, if your name appears on somebody who didn't pay their taxes, you're in bad company, aren't you? So again, it's quite extensive to think about all the places your name may or may not be and why it is there, whether it deserves to be there and whether it's good or bad for it to be there. But you know, another thing to think about is that as Solomon said and I kind of paraphrase this from several scriptures, eventually, if our name gets carved on a tombstone, after that, our name will be erased from the culture, from humanity, from memory, and unless you're pretty important, from history. So it brings us right back to what the Lord said. The most important place your name can appear is in heaven because all these places where we put our name or somebody puts our name on earth eventually is going to be gone now even the internet wikipedia and all there is out there and information cannot preserve your name your identity or who you were in that respect again death conquers us all and if that don't do it then when the lord destroys this old earth and all that's therein then all those memories and everything where your name was it's going out to but if your name is in heaven it's in a better place than being here on this earth this earth is temporary but things in heaven are permanent so focus today and ask yourself There's only one real important place for your name. And that is not on earth, but is your name written in heaven? And the next reaction may be to many who hear us today, well, how in the world would I know that? Well, let me assure you, if you'll keep listening, I'll tell you from God's Word how you can know if your name is in heaven or not. I would say to you, the very place itself shows you how important your name being there is. Heaven. We're not of heaven. We're not from heaven. God resides in the heavens. That's God's place and the place of holy angels. And yet the people of God have a citizenship there And just like in many towns and things of old, in old primitive times, they had a list of names of the people that resided in certain towns. Well, there's a book up there. The Bible says there is. And it's got names in it. And those are citizens of heaven. Some of them are already there and the rest of us are waiting to go there. One day we're all going to be there. Everybody whose name's written in the book. And that's all that's really going to matter. That's all that will matter in the end is your destiny. Now the Bible puts a name to this book in Revelation chapter 20 in verses 12 and verse 15. Two places there. And this is referring of course to the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. But in verse 12 it calls it In contrast to books that were opened, there is another book, a unique book, and it says, which is the book of life. And in verse 15, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. So we go back to our original statement. To have your name in the book of life means to be saved, to be delivered from the wrath of God, the penalty of your sins, as these two verses both refer to in Revelation chapter 13 and 8 we have a little more detail about the book it is the same book and in 13 and 8 of Revelations it says all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are him here is antichrist whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world now notice the book of life is the book of life of the lamb it is associated with and cannot be divided from the lamb and the lamb here you read in previous chapters of this book and in other places even John the Baptist the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world the Lamb here is none other than Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. So, it's the Lamb's book. Those who are written in the book belong to the Lamb. It is a record of those who belong to the Lamb. And it says the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Now again, when was the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, slain? Well, human history, a little over 2,000 years ago. But it speaks here to the purpose, to the decree, and to the will of Almighty God and the purpose of God that He was purposed to be slain from the foundation of the world. In fact, in this context, with the book and the Lamb, and the purpose of him being slain from the foundation of the world, we see that there could have been no names from the foundation of the world if there had not been a purpose for putting them there. It all goes together. And it brings us to the very next point, is how and when did these names get here? Well, If it's the Lamb's book of life, and the purpose was that the Lamb would be slain from the foundation of the world, then again the names could be there from the foundation of the world because the Lamb was slain for His people. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. Very clearly. And note also it's called the book of life. Physical life? No, it's a book of eternal life. That's what Jesus the lamb promised, wasn't it? My sheep hear my voice, and I give unto them eternal life, eternal life. I don't want another life like the one I got now, do you? No, I I'm I'll be happy when this one is over because that means then there's the other one, eternal life. So He's not giving us what we already got. He's giving us far superior than what we have. And it is the Lamb who gives this. So it says the Lamb was slain in the purpose and plan of redemption from the foundation of the world. When God plans something, it's as good as done. Now I realize that don't settle too well in our little finite minds. But if God determines it, if God thinks it, the Bible says, I believe in the book of Job, if God wills it, it's as good as done. And it don't matter if it happened 40 trillion years in the future. It's as good as done when God determines it shall be. Because the Bible assures us what God determines He brings it to pass. And in His time. So that's why we can read about the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He literally was not, but He was purposed. And He was willing. And it was decreed. And all of those things are there from the foundation of the world. Well, the Bible tells us in Revelation 17 and 8 that this is when the names were put there. 17 and 8 of Revelation... The latter half of that says whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And it's speaking about unbelievers there. But again, it tells us the names are there from the foundation of the world. The same time the purpose was for Christ to redeem them. And we'll bring this to a fruition thought in just a moment. Peter also mentions this. I want to mention this scripture in 1 Peter 1 and 20, where it speaks of Christ in verse 19 as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's our lamb. And it says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Tie that in. What was foreordained? That Christ, the second person of the Godhead, would become a man incarnate, be born of a virgin, live upon this life, suffer as a man, yet without sin, and would die as a redeemer for the sins of his people. It was foreordained. It was purposed. It was decreed. This is why these references to the foundation of of the world. So the names were written from the foundation of the world because God had determined and it was a surety that Christ would come and redeem his people. To think otherwise is to get the cart before the horse and count your chickens before the hatch but no such thing has ever happened with God and it shall not. For these things to happen before the foundation of the world is synonymous with election from the foundation of of the world. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1 we read these words verse 4 according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us he God chose us in him Christ okay before the foundation of the world. So we can't, can't talk about names being written in a book from the foundation of the world without talking about the election of God that literally would cause the names to be written down. God would elect, and based upon election, the record would be put down. That would be the very basis for it. Now, one other scripture I want to give you on this is Titus chapter 1 in verse 2 that speaks here. I'll read verse 1 for context. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. Literally, that's the names that are in the book is the names of God's elect. And the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now, let's pause there just briefly and ask ourselves, did God promise eternal life before the world began? If He did, how did He do that? Who did He promise it to? You weren't there, I weren't there, there was no created being there unless the angels were there, and I don't even think they were there. I think this supersedes everything God created. The foundation of the world, meaning pre-creation. And would be inclusive of angels in my opinion. How did God promise it? In foreordaining it? In electing certain persons? In writing their names together down in the book? God promised it. In fact, I'm not going to Scripture, but in the Hebrews it talks about it. About the blood of the everlasting covenant. Think about that. It's worthy of your thoughts and meditation. If it is an everlasting covenant, who is included in that and who is excluded from that? Well, all created beings are excluded from it. If you're not an everlasting being, you're not in it. The only thing everlasting and eternal is God. The three persons of the Godhead. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. It's their everlasting covenant. And we read it in Ephesians 1 and 4. God the Father chose. God the Father gave to the Son or chose in Christ. Christ agreed to redeem. Christ promised from the foundation of the world to redeem those that were given to Him by God the Father. And the blessed Holy Spirit would be effectual in calling those sheep out of the world and into the fold. So, foundation of the world. Names written. Election has occurred. The Lamb foreordained. All of this. This is what we call the eternal plan of redemption and the everlasting covenant. The covenant within the Godhead itself. Well, how did the names get in? Well, I kind of ruled out angels when I just told you it's my opinion that no angels were there when this was all transacted. There was only the Godhead. I believe God himself wrote the names. Who else would write them? If God the Father elected them, wouldn't God the Father have written them in the book? And wouldn't that record then have been given to the Son to redeem? That's what naturally from the scriptures I have presented to you we would conclude I believe so again get this the names were written from the foundation of the world they are not written in time according to the song that's in a lot of hymnals that says a new name in heaven there's no such thing heaven knows of no new names the only names in heaven are old names they've been there since the foundation of the world There are no new names. If there was anything new, then God would have to change. But God wrote the names, and God being God, it is a permanent sealed record. It is not like a second grader's notebook where they're constantly writing and erasing and putting in and taking out because God himself has never erased anything. No need to erase anything. You only erase when you make a mistake. You only correct when you've done something wrong. God's never done that. We just read a while ago that God cannot lie. Well, God's the most accurate record keeper there ever has been. I don't know how many souls will be in heaven, but I know He'll have it down to the very last and exact one because that's the promise of Christ Himself. So these names weren't put there down through time. The sheep are brought into the fold in time. They're converted in time. They're quickened in time. But the names have always been there. Always been there. The knowledge of our names come to us in time. But it isn't wonderful to know. In fact, you remember when you first grasped that truth? What? You mean my name was written from the foundation of the world by God himself? What a blessed truth, what blessed assurance and security we have in Christ because if only in this life we have hope, we're of all people most miserable. No, start to finish, it's all of God. So there is a permanent record, no mistakes, no names being put in, no names being taken out. The immutable, sovereign, eternal God has a record and it's just like Him. It is impeccable. No mistakes, no errors. The habitation of heaven belongs to all whose names are in this book. We stated that a moment ago, but in Revelation 21 we read about John seeing a new heaven And a new earth and in the last verse of that chapter he mentions the new Jerusalem that will be in heaven and those who have access to it will have access to it because their names are written in the book of life so the new heaven and new earth is for those whose names are written in the book they're going to be the ones who dwell and abide in heaven and can dwell in or come and go as may be the case in the new Jerusalem so this is something very very important now we want to come to the why and the how why are these names written by that we're asking the question why did God write the names in the book he was not obligated he was not under pressure. Nobody pressures God. Sinners provoke Him, but nobody pressures God. Nobody changes God. Why were these names written? What caused God to write names of people who yet existed in this book? The answer is Jeremiah 31.3. Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God wrote those names out of love. Those names are in that book because God loved. That's it. Everyone whose name is in that book is loved of God, has always been loved of God, and cannot be separated from the love of God. Like the song we sing, the love of God. It's the loving hand that put those names there. The names of God's people. Many times you may hear me or others say that those whose names were written, those who Christ died for, were the objects of His love and affection. And indeed, that is right. And it makes a point. We're just that. We're just the object. We didn't do anything to become the object, but we were the object that He put His love. on. I like like what the Bible... I love this phrase in Deuteronomy 7 and 7 concerning Israel. And it really captures what I'm trying to say to you. Uh, The Lord speaking here of Israel, the seed of Abraham, the elect nation. So the application applies to God's elect in the book... Like it does here because it's talking about God's eternal, everlasting, and indiscriminate love. And look at the phrase, The Lord did not set His love upon you. Isn't that precious? He set His love upon you. What did you do to deserve God's love? Nothing. There's nothing you could do. God loves you because God wanted to. And again, remember, God's not obligated to set his love on nobody. But God set his love upon those whose names were written in the book of life. Now, one of the problems right here is, well, God saw something in me. And he wrote my name. Sinners naturally want to think that. Well, God looked, and just like we look out at a flock of chickens, a herd of sheep... Horses, whatever it may be, or you ladies, items in the grocery store. You look at the multitude of it and you pick. And you pick because you think or you may see something in one that is superior to another. We make those choices every day, don't we? I mean, we want the best we can get for our money or to eat or to taste or whatever it may be. Well, that doesn't apply with God. God made His choices without that condition. And if you want to know how God chose, then read Psalms 14 or Psalms 53 where it's quoted. Because the Bible says there when God looked down and He could see all humanity from beginning to end, from the first to the last, He saw nobody that was worthy to be chosen. They're all unrighteous. They've all gone astray. They're all evildoers, nothing good. And I love, I told somebody this here recently. I, it's the best thing I've ever heard to my mind on this and on those scriptures that when God made his choices, nobody stood out among anybody else. And the example that I heard long, many years ago was if you put every human being that would ever live in a paper bag and you opened it up to pour them out, nobody would come out first. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, you put anything in a bag and you pour it out, something's coming out ahead of something else. Not so with humanity. We're all the same. And it's not good. So God made His choices based on His will, not on us. Contrary to everything we do in the matter of choosing. And it was simply according to His good pleasure. Thus it is all of grace. All of grace. Now the Bible makes it clear that those whose names are written in that book were given to the Son to redeem. We've covered that lame slam slain from the foundation of the world. But let me give you these scriptures. Christ said in the intercessory prayer in John 17 and verse 2. Verse 1, glorify thy son, you know, he gave request to the Father. Verse 2, he says, as thou hast given him, speaking in the third person of himself, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So who is going to have eternal life? Those whose names are written in the book. God the Father chose them. He gave them to the Son. The Son said, I'll lay down my life and redeem them. And one day bring them before you, my Father. And one day he's going to do just that. We sing another song. I keep thinking of lyrics and songs this morning on this message. Son, go bring my children home. One day, what a precious thought, isn't it? That God the Father who chose will one day tell God the Son, Son, go get them. It's time. Jesus himself said nobody knows that time, but God, my Father which is in heaven, At one time, I mean marvelous, I can't get off of that. What a precious thought. That even right now, our Savior is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Interceding on our behalf just by being there. He doesn't have to say anything. Just being there. And that who knows, in the next moment, the next hour, the next whatever. Hypothetical words, but very true. Son, go bring my children, know, and Christ is going to rise, and He's going to go get them. And when we all show up up there at the throne of God, there's not going to be a vacant spot in the ranks. Everybody whose name is in the book is going to be there. It's a certainty. What a precious, precious thought. Christ Himself said, in John six thirty seven All the Father giveth me will come unto me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He said, I won't lose a one. In that marvelous John chapter 10 again, verses 27 through 29, Christ says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my father are one Christ purchased our redemption well when will we know who's in the book and who's not the Bible says in Revelation 20 at the great white throne that's when that book is going to be opened now today based on what I have said everybody that hears me are you wondering if your name is written in that book, you should be concerned about whether it's there or not. I mean, it should be your greatest concern because we're talking about the eternal destiny of your soul. Many probably read the things I've referred to this morning and are wondering. Equally or perhaps surpassing that are those that are hoping Hoping that in that day when everybody is gathered there and everybody will be there. Humans, angels, everybody's going to be there. Hoping that when that book is opened that somewhere in that book their name is there. I tell you, I would not want to live in that misery. And I thank God I don't have to. And I feel and grieve for those that do. Because this book right here tells us the things that are written therein are written that you may know. They're not written so you'll have to wonder and that you'll have to be miserable until that time before you can find out but that you can know now. I know for sure, do you? And I'm not being a know-it-all when I say that. But I know for sure. Somebody's wondering. They say, well, how can you know? Who's seen the book? I don't believe anybody's seen in the book. I believe only the triune God knows what's in that book. I don't believe the angels know what's in that book. Well, one day that book's going to manifest. How can you know? Well, let me direct you to, I believe, an easy answer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 Verse 4 and 5, and I said earlier on in tying all of those things together that we would bring it to a fruition. Well, here's the fruition. Of your name written, being saved, being adopted, being predestinated, being elected. uh, Paul says here in verse 4, To Thessalonian converts, knowing brother, your election of God. Now, how could even the inspired apostle Paul... No, they were elect. He may have went to the third heaven, but I don't believe he had the privilege of looking in the book. How do you know that? Well, the next word in verse 5 is a for, but that's the little preposition that can be because also. And I think we kind of should reread it. Because... Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. And then in verse 6, You became followers of us. What do what do the Lord's people do? They hear, they respond, and they do what in John 10? They follow. You became followers of us and of the Lord. Paul said, I'm following the Lord, come go with me. And they followed Him having received the Word with much affliction and joy of the Holy Ghost. And if that's not enough, we drop down to the end of the chapter, verse 9 and 10. He says, Your works show us what manner of entering we had in you. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and you're waiting with hope for His Son from heaven. Folks, that's how you know you're the elect of God. That's what Paul said. I know your election of God. And in summation, he is simply saying... The only way he knew, the only way anyone can know, the only way you can know about yourself or anybody else is, how have you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you obeyed it? They did. And he called them the elect of God, essentially. That's the only way you know That's the only way I know my name's written in that book. Not because there's something special about me, but because I have repented and believed upon Jesus Christ for the remission of my sins. That didn't put my name in the book, but that manifests my name is in the book. And that's the only way you can know. It is effectual, it is impersonal. God called me if you're saved today. God called you and He knew your name before you knew your name. And before your parents gave you your name. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Before your name was on your birth certificate, God had it written in heaven if you're His child. You was His child before you were His parents' child. (laughs) I like that thought. I had siblings in heaven before I ever had siblings on earth. And that family in heaven is more important than the families on earth. They have their proper places, but... That's the special place. And it's all because of what he wrote down up there. Now, somebody might say, and I'll throw this in and we'll close here. And to anyone that's wondering about their name being there, they may and this is a common deception of Satan, so bear with me, and I want to say this to those that may be lost and hear me today. Well, preacher, you just said the names are written down or they're not, so there ain't nothing I can do about it. So I'm not going to worry about it. What dif- Why should I fret over whether my name's in the book of life or not? Because I can't do one thing about it. It's either there or not. Well, let me compassionately say to you, that's about the stupidest thing that you could ever think. In fact, that is absolutely foolishness. And I'll prove it to you. I don't mean to offend anybody. But let me prove that to you. Would you go park your car on a railroad track with a train coming not knowing whether the train will kill you or not but just sit there and let it hit you to wait and see. Anybody that would do that we'd be ready to commit them to an insane asylum if we still got any of those. I don't know if we do or not. Because that would be insanity, wouldn't it? No. Anybody with any sense at all that had time to act, would act. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about here. I can't tell you your name's there. I haven't seen it. I don't know who's there. Not specifically. But this I know on the authority of Scripture, all who repent and believe, their names are there. And that's how I know my name's there. And the gospel today says unto you, sinner, if you're lost and you're wondering or you're hoping, it's very simple. The gospel says today, hear his voice and repent and believe, and you can know right now. The most foolish thing in the world for any sinner to do. And this is what Satan encourages you to do. Well, you can't do nothing about it, so don't worry about it. You know, you're either in or you're out. No, you can. You've heard me this day. And let me say to you, Your eternal destiny and the responsibility of your eternal destiny lies on you right now and on the future. Because you have been warned. You have been told. God tells you what's coming. He's telling you there's a train of His wrath coming. And He's telling you do something about it now. And when He says, I never knew you and cast you into outer darkness, you know what it'll be before? Because your rejection because you heard it did not believe you listened to the devil and said well it's there it's not just be a fatalist about it let me give you another example quickly can we live in a blessed time in that today parents can have an ultrasound on a pregnant woman and determine at a very early time what the sex of the child is now that, that technology is a blessing but it's also a blessing of, of parents isn't it? why most, most people that I've known take advantage of that they want to know what the baby is I remember when I was a kid, well, there's going to be a boy, It's going to be a girl. And the women were talking about it. Well, we're going to buy blue, we're going to buy pink. Well, I don't know what to do. I, you know, and all, and I, you know, like, you can eliminate all that now. But the bottom line, I brought that up for this reason. Why do people want to know? So they can prepare. Do you want to know today if your, if your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life? Or do you want to be foolish, and again i say that compassionately, and live your life wondering or hoping until the books are open. When the Bible says those whose names are there obey the gospel, confess their sins, and find that Jesus is faithful to forgive them of their sins. That's how you know Your name is in the book. Because that's what God's Word says and God cannot lie. That is something to rejoice about. And that is the greatest thing to rejoice about. And I hope you can rejoice in that today whoever's hearing me, wherever. And if you can't rejoice in what I've said here today on the authority of God's Word, may God in His mercy and grace give you grace to believe what's been said today that's our prayer to him be the glory amen